Welcome to the Global Governance Perspective, a podcast presented by the Global Governance Institution. I'm retired Captain Andy Tian, the founder and the president of the Global Governance Institution. In this episode, our research fellow Ms. Wang Lin will host Professor William Shabas, a regular guest of Global Governance Perspective. To talk about the latest development of ICC investigation in situation of Ukraine, Professor William Shabas is a professor of international law at Middlesex University in London. He is also professor of international human law and human rights at Leiden University, emeritus professor of human rights law at the National University of Ireland, Galway, and honorary chairman of the Irish Centre for Human Rights, and. Invited as visiting scholar at the Paris School of International Affairs, his specialty is international criminal law, where he has published extensively in recent years. This legal background makes him the perfect speaker for this episode about the ICC situation in Ukraine. The ICC formally began its investigation of situation in Ukraine since March the second and made rapid progress so far. As ICC chief prosecutor. Karen Kang said in a news report, the ICC sent a team of 42 investigators, foreign experts, and support staff to the Ukraine to probe potential war crimes, representing the largest ever single field deployment since the office began its work in 2003. In addition, vast portions of resources and support were poured into ICC. The U.S. State Department launched a new program called. The conflict observatory to capture, analyze, and make widely available evidence of Russia perpetrated war crimes and other atrocities in Ukraine. The European Commission also launched a new pro- project under its foreign policy instrument to support the investigation capacities of the ICC with 7.25 million euros. On the surface, the ICC appears to be undergoing a Renaissance of sensitivity and operational capacity. However, against the backdrop of the ICC's failure to make make progress for years in in its investigations of situations in Iraq, Afghanistan, targeting NATO countries including the United States, Britain, and Australia, and as well the sanctions imposed directly on the ICC by the United States to stop its investigations. If the ICC were to conduct war crime trials against Russia in a very short period of time, could this be considered a success story for the court? How can the rapid response and convergence of resources and the demonstrated in this case be evaluated in comparison to ICC's performance in other situations, such as the above-mentioned investigation against the U.S., Britain, and Australia? If the ICC does succeed in finding war crimes in this conflict, Will this really give the ICC more confidence and credit? Would such a success raise suspicions that the ICC is being politicized and instrumentalized? For all those questions, please tune in our podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello, Professor. And welcome to join Global Governance Perspective by GGI. My name is Wang Lin, and I will be the host today to talk with you, our very honored guest, Professor William Shabas.、Uh, first,、uh, I will introduce Professor Shabas briefly.、Uh, Mr. William Shabas is professor of international law at Middlesex University, London. 
He is also professor of international criminal law and human rights at Leiden University and professor emeritus of human rights law at the, at the National University of Ireland, Galway. Recognized as a leading expert on international human rights law, international criminal law, genocide, and capital punishment, Professor Shabazz is the author of more than 20 books and 350 journal articles on all those issues we mentioned. He is also the editor emeritus of Criminal Law Forum. Professor Shabazz was not only very famous in the academics, but also has done a lot of things in the real practice. He was a member of the Sierra Leone Truth and Reconciliation Commission. He also worked as a consultant on capital punishment for the UN Office of Drugs and Crime. And he also drafted the 2010 and the 2015 reports of the UN Secretary General on the status of the death penalty. Welcome, Professor Shabazz. Thank you, Ms. Wang. Thank you. I was very impressed. Today's topic is the possible Russia-Ukraine conflict war crimes trial by the ICC and its impact on the development of international criminal law. As we know that in March 2nd, 2022, soon after Russia launched a large-scale military invasion of Ukraine, the ICC announced an investigation into the possible crimes committed in Ukraine by Russian armed forces. It is very hot discussed among the uh, community of international criminal law, and it is said that the ICC sent a team of 42 investigators, forensic experts, and support staff to Ukraine to probe potential war crimes, representing the largest ever single field deployment since the office began its work in 2003. And we also observed that US and EU have been actively and uh, to launch some project to support the investigation and empower the ICC uh, by launching some re related initiatives. Uh, they are the Conflict Observatory of US State Department and also the Foreign Policy Instrument of the European Commission. They all uh, give some financial support with those initiatives. It seems that the ICC is facing an opportunity to be truly revived. Some people may assume this, but however, there are also some other people may wonder, is this truly a big victory for the ICC or not? So how to understand the, the quick response and assemble of resources from US and EU in this case, compared with the ICC's performance in the previously in other situations? So if ICC did succeed in this trial of war crimes in this conflict, will it bring more confidence to the ICC or the opposite? So with all these questions, we will discuss in the following hour. And the Professor mm -hmm. William Shabazz is really the renewed expert in the international criminal law that we, we should talk and learn from about all this. So thank you, Professor, again, for talking with us. And we are look forward to learning from you. And for the audience, uh, in the end of today's talk, we will have about 10 minutes for Q&A. Uh, if you have questions or want to give your comments, Alternatively, you can also put your questions in the chat box and uh, we will collect the questions and uh, send them to the professor later. So uh, sorry for this very long introduction, professor. Uh, first, uh, I would like to start with the question is that uh, with the um, uh, ICC's probe into the accused the war crimes committed by Russia in Ukraine. So what's your latest observation of the development? Thank you. Well, yes, thank you again, uh, 
uh, Ms. Wang, for hosting this and for inviting me to participate in this webinar. I've been uh, following the International Criminal Court since it, its beginnings. I attended the Rome Conference where the Rome Statute was adopted in 1998, and I'd been working on the subject for several years before the Rome Statute was adopted. It's basically been my career, is watching this, this field of international criminal law develop, but more particularly, this permanent institution, which was something that was, was our dream in a way. This was finally recognizing the proper place for international criminal justice internationally. As you know, it had been previously confined to temporary tribunals, like in Europe, the Nuremberg Tribunal, in Asia, the Tokyo Tribunal, and, and so on. Um, and then in the early 1990s, there were some new, uh, there was a revival of the temporary tribunals. And we have a tribunal for, for the former Yugoslavia, and we had one for Rwanda. But the dream was always to have a permanent court. And so the, the framework for that court was adopted in 19, 1998 at Rome, and it entered into force in 2002. You know, it's 20 years now since the Rome Statute entered into force, and, and maybe more like 19 years since we can say that the International Criminal Court became operational. I, I think we have to say that it's been kind of disappointing in terms of its productivity. It's, it's convicted five people. If you go on the website of the court, they'll claim that they convicted 10 people and they've had four acquittals. But this is a, a very misleading picture of what the court has done. They've actually only convicted five people of the serious crimes in the Rome Statute. They convicted five people of minor technical offenses of tampering with witnesses that has nothing to do with international law. It's just a bad thing that people do when they're involved in, in, in court cases. So really it's only five convictions. And when they say acquittals, these are the trials that, they, that were completed with a judgment of not guilty. But there were many more trials that were dropped along the way because of the, the prosecutor didn't have enough evidence, judges rejected them because of insufficient evidence. And, and so we're really actually talking more like, I think, 12 to 15 cases that were that, that 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 didn't lead to a conviction and five that did and if you were a professional prosecutor working in china or anywhere else if you if you had a 25% success rate i think you'd be looking for a new job okay i think that that's so so this is the productivity of the court now when the conflict in ukraine began at the end of february of this year there was an intense mobilization of public opinion, media, and so on against Russia in the part of the world where I live. I live in Europe, and, and Europe and, and uh, basically the countries that are in or around NATO got extraordinarily excited about this conflict. I think that in the rest of the world, there was less excitement. It was less dramatic. It looked more like a border war between two countries that the United States had played a, a significant role in provoking, even if, of course, it was Russia that was guilty of using force uh, unlawfully when they invaded Ukraine. The only grounds that they can do it under the Charter of the United Nations is self-defense, and they haven't argued that it was self-defense. So um, 
it, it's, you know, Russia broke the law, but they were prodded and provoked by NATO. So the International Criminal Court uh, immediately shifted its focus to the conflict in Ukraine. And some people, as you explained, think that this is going to be the, this is the magic potion that's going to re, reinvigorate the court, restore it, and give it vitality and significance. I think personally that it's more like the poison pill. It's more like a poisonous potion that the court will drink. Because what, what this is, is the clearest manifestation since the court was created of it following a political orientation. Um, this was, was never so clear as it's been in the last four months. And my fear is that the court has become the NATO court, basically. It's become a court that follows the priorities of NATO. This was not the institution, the way the institution was supposed to be. When it was created in 1998, it followed a succession of temporary tribunals. I've mentioned them, Nuremberg, Tokyo, um, Yugoslavia, and Rwanda, that were all created by uh, political decisions, by political bodies. In the case of Nuremberg, it was the four powers who met in, at the London conference, the, the Soviet Union, the United States, France, and Britain. In the case of Tokyo, it was the United States as the occupying power in Japan, but with the cooperation and consultation of other countries, including China and other countries in, in the region. Um, when the Yugoslavia and Rwanda tribunals were created, this was by a resolution of the United Nations Security Council. So that meant that it had the support of the five permanent members of the Security Council. At least it didn't have the opposition of the five permanent members of the Security Council, although it's clear that at the time it was the United States with Britain and France who were the big enthusiasts for having the court. But China and Russia were agreed and, it, and those two were created. For most countries in the world, the idea that, this, that, that the selection of the agenda for an international criminal court would be directed by a body like the UN Security Council was profoundly objectionable. Objectionable because it, it was undemocratic. It was leaving this in the hands of a, of a small number of big powers, but also objectionable because justice shouldn't be, the focus of justice shouldn't be a political determination. It should be a legal determination. And so the, the solution to this, how to do this was, there were, there were two options. One was to create another political body that would be constituted differently than the Security Council, but that wasn't, that didn't get any real support. It wouldn't get the support of the Security Council, that's for sure, but it didn't get the support of others. The other was to create a prosecutor who would be fully independent and who would decide on the priorities of the court. And so that is the result. Essentially what we have in the Rome Statute is a court where a single person directs, takes the decisions about the priorities of the court. A person who is not accountable to a, a body does not have to justify their decision before another body. Uh, someone who can only be removed from office for gross misconduct and not because the 
not because the members of the court object to the decisions the prosecutor is taking. It can only be removed for corruption or misbehavior. Um, and so th that's the model, and it's an unstable model. It's, a, it's an inherently unstable model because there's, there's nowhere in the international sphere where we have a single person who can decide on the focus and the priorities of an organization with a budget of 150 million euro a year. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary. The Secretary General of the United Nations looks like a bureaucrat compared to the prosecutor of the court who has, who has this huge power. Well, we've had three prosecutors now, and the first prosecutor was, he, he, he was not so clear about his political priorities, um, but he was clear in one respect, is that he directed all of his attention to Africa. And my thesis about this is he went to Africa because these were soft targets that did not bring him into confrontation with powerful countries, in particular, powerful countries in the north of the planet, the, what we call the global north. The second prosecutor was a little more, I think a little more courageous and a little more independent in that she pushed forward slowly, cautiously. Um, she could have been far more aggressive in this area, but she did push forward on uh, cases and situations that were threatening to countries in the North, Palestine in particular, which infuriated not only Israel, but also of course, the United States, but also to an extent, Britain and France who were great friends of Israel. And then she also pursued the investigation in Afghanistan, which was clearly directed in part at the allegations of torture by US agents in Afghanistan. And this, of course, infuriated the American government to the extent that they put the prosecutor on a kind of blacklist and imposed a kind of sanction on the prosecutor. So this, I think, showed some courage on her part, although she was very careful about it. And she never, she never completed it in the sense that she never got to the stage of issuing arrest warrants against uh, uh, Americans or Israeli officials, for example. She also pushed forward on the, on the case dealing with Russia in Ukraine, in, 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 in uh, Crimea, and uh, in Georgia. But we have a new prosecutor who was elected uh, about a year and a half ago and who took office uh, just 13 months ago. And he has very quickly demonstrated his own political orientation. He's a British prosecutor. He's a British nationality. The first thing he did was to make it clear that he's not pursuing the investigation of the Americans in Afghanistan. He's not doing that. He's stopped that. So this means that there's so far total impunity for the torture that was committed by American agents in Afghanistan. Nobody else is prosecuting them. No European countries are prosecuting Americans under universal jurisdiction. The Americans aren't prosecuting them. So there's a gap, there's an impunity gap, and the prosecutor is not addressing it. As for Israel and Palestine, that case is, is active and open, but we have no signs of life there. No, 
there's no progress, no visible progress in the investigation in Israel, which involves the Israeli authorities committing war crimes in Palestine, but also the war crime of moving settlers into occupied territories. And then we have this sudden excitement at the, at the end of February and the beginning of March of this year about Ukraine. Now, the International Criminal Court is designed to address impunity, situations where crimes are going unpunished, generally because the courts of the country that should be punishing them are not doing their job. That's the model of the court. That's when the court is supposed to operate. This is not the situation in Ukraine. Ukraine has already had trials. People were rejoicing. They prosecuted a, a Russian soldier some time ago and sentenced him to life imprisonment. Um, and, and they've shown they're doing investigations. They have a very active prosecutor and a prosecution office. So there's no reason for the International Criminal Court even to be there. But, and the prosecutor could very easily have said, you know, it's a good situation in terms of criminal justice in Ukraine because the, because the courts there are doing their job. And to the extent that there are war crimes being committed on the other side, and Russia, of course, has alleged also that genocide has been committed in eastern Ukraine. Russia's doing prosecutions as well. So there's no problem of impunity except one of resources. And I think that the courts of Ukraine are more efficient than the courts, than the International Criminal Court. The case that the international that the courts of Ukraine finished two months ago, if that had been at the International Criminal Court, it would go on for three years or four years. So there's, there's no reason for them to be there except the symbolism. And the other problem with it, the, the prosecutor came to the, to, the mem to the meeting of all of the states of the court last December, before this crisis. And he said, I need more money. I don't have enough money to do what I'm doing. I have all these investigations and I can't do them because I don't have enough resources. And the countries that have the money, Britain and France in particular said, no, you, you have enough money. You get along and deal with, do what you can do with what you have. All of a sudden at the beginning of March, the wallets, the purses of these countries opened up and the EU made a huge financial commitment this was also not supposed to happen at the International Criminal Court. It was very important in terms of the independence of the court that its priorities not be directed by rich countries the way they do in the United Nations. We all know that in the United Nations, particularly in the area of human rights, that the priorities are often directed by wealthy countries because they don't have enough money in the UN. And so countries say, we'll give you money to do this. The countries of Africa don't do this. They don't have any money. They don't have the money to do this. Many countries in Asia, Latin America, they don't do this. It's the rich countries in the North who have the money. And so it's rich countries in Europe who've given the money to the court. And this, this also was not supposed to happen. So in Europe, I'm sorry for going on so long, but I have a lot to say on this. In Europe, in the EU, they're so excited. They think this is the most fantastic development for the International Criminal Court. But 
the International Criminal Court is not a European court. It's a global court. The largest regional membership of the court is in Africa. The Africans, they're not enthusiastic about the prosecution because they're not enthusiastic about the Ukrainian side and the NATO position in the war. So this is something that will, it will endear the court to the Europeans and to wealthy countries in the world, but ultimately it's going to destroy the support that they have elsewhere in the world. And more and more countries will look at it and say, this is, this is just like other institutions that are run by the rich countries in the North and follow their political agendas. And I think in the long run, this will, this will greatly damage the court. I think it's going to do a lot more harm and, and there's no need for them to do it because the courts of Ukraine can do the job themselves. Thank you, Professor. You give us a very comprehensive overview of the whole situation uh, with historical, yeah, the clues that also the future predictions. Uh, and I will dig deeper with some specific questions. And uh, you mentioned, uh, what impressed me is first you, 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 you address that um, the ICC uh, is an international court. It's not a NATO court. It's, it's not a European court. So uh, it is working on an opposite direction as it is uh, as it was designed previously. So, but maybe uh, some people in the West, especially from those countries, they may hope that with the ICC investigation will have some impact, maybe deterrence uh, on the conflicts uh, in on the ground in Ukraine. Do you think they will have this goal realized or will that work? Um, well, the, the International Criminal Court can exercise jurisdiction over four crimes. Genocide, I think we can exclude this. There have been allegations of genocide on both sides, but in my view, uh, this is, a, uh, is not the correct term to be using. It's being used in a non-legal sense because it excites people and mobilizes people. Um, both the Russians and the Ukrainians have used it. Joe Biden has used the word. Um, uh, others, um, Justin Trudeau has used the word, some leaders of other countries. But let, let's put that aside. The, the main allegations are of war crimes that are being committed in Ukraine. Uh, there are war crimes being committed on both sides. So we, we hear also these reports about you know, we have to investigate the Russian war crimes. And it's probably the case that Russia, uh, Russia has committed more war crimes than, than Ukraine, but Ukrainians have committed war crimes as well. And if we're going to prosecute those crimes, as I say, they have to be done on, on, both, on both sides. Um, the, the other crime within the court, so war crimes are about violations in the context, in the conflict, mainly by combatants, by soldiers who target civilians, who uh, abuse prisoners, who abuse civilians in, a, in the territories that are occupied, um, who, who use weapons indiscriminately and kill civilians. These are examples. There's a long list of them. And as I say, I think that it's clear that there have been, some of them have been committed on both sides, although I think probably a lot more by Russia than by Ukraine. But so the question is, can we deter those crimes? 
the International Criminal Court can prosecute them, but I don't think that it's having a great deterrent on Russian uh, soldiers because the Russians are not members of the court. They don't have any obligation to cooperate with the court. I guess that if there are Russian soldiers who are suspects and they decide to go on vacations to the south of France, they might expose themselves to being arrested and brought to the International Criminal Court. But I don't think that's a likely scenario. Uh, I think it's quite unlikely. There's also uh, the, the hope that they will be able to prosecute the Russian leaders. And there's the sense that maybe the International Criminal Court could prosecute the Russian leaders. But there, they would need evidence um, that, that I don't think they really have of a chain of command, that there were orders that the Russian leaders ordered their soldiers to commit these crimes or didn't, didn't punish them. That's not uh, straightforward. The, the woman who's about to be anointed as the next prime minister of the United Kingdom, Liz Truss, some weeks ago talked about how Putin had ordered rapes and other war crimes to be committed. But this is fantasy. This is imagination. There's no evidence that these crimes were ordered. So this will be a, a challenging thing. Um, also, there's a lot of talk about in the, in, the, in the press mainly and by politicians about things that are alleged to be war crimes. But when we see the evidence publicly, uh, what's, what's reported in the media, it's not so clear that, that these are war crimes. Uh, things like when a missile hits near a hospital or hits a hospital, it's, it, it's not obvious that that's a war crime. We have to know more to be able to say it's a war crime. We have to know, for example, whether it was being used by the Ukrainians for a military purpose or whether the Russians could reasonably think that. So I'm not trying to apologize for the Russians, but just to say that a lot of the a lot of the reports of war crimes that we, that I've seen in the media are not actually. Uh, if we gave if we gave them to our law students on an exam and say, "Could you conclude this is a war crime?" The answer would have to be no, because we don't we don't they don't answer uh, some of the questions. There were these scenes that were um, were a great deal of there was a great deal of excitement of bodies of civilians on the street in the town of Busha. And there, um, people said, well, this shows these are civilians who've been killed. This must be a war crime. But that's not true. Civilians, civilians can be killed in an armed conflict without it being a war crime, especially in a country where the president of the country has called on his citizens to resist the invasion. He made a general appeal, and he said to all men of a certain age, above, I guess, 18 years of age and below the age of 60 could not leave, could not become refugees because they had to fight. So, and we saw, we saw photographs, uh, a great deal of excitement. People were praising this in the West when, when civilians in Russia, in Ukraine were helping to make things like Molotov cocktails to attack the Russians. So when you have the when when the other side thinks that the citizens, not the soldiers, but the civilians have been mobilized to fight them, they become targets. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing. But but Ukraine blurred the lines of who was a combatant and who was a non-combatant. 
And this put the non-combatants in Ukraine at risk. It's not just me who's saying this. The big human rights NGOs have said this, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, have all pointed to this and said that Ukraine was careless about, about distinguishing between civilians and, and uh, combatants. So again, all of this means that we have to have a closer look to see you know, what the war crimes were. There was a huge amount of media attention about the sexual assaults and the rapes. And as I say, the woman who's going to be the next prime minister of the United Kingdom said that Putin had ordered them, although there's no evidence that he did this. But you know, the United Nations uh, Human Rights, uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights has a mission in Ukraine and it issues a report every uh, few weeks about the number of casualties. They investigate the casualties. And they have about 20 cases, I think, according to the last report, of sexual assault and rapes that they're investigating. So these are crimes. They're terrible crimes. But if Putin had ordered them, there would be more than 20 that had been committed. That's for sure. And it's, a, it's not a high number. It's, it's an unacceptable number. It, these are horrible crimes. Even raping one person is a terrible crime. But, but the numbers are not of the magnitude that they've been, that the impression that's been given by politicians and by, um, by the media. The other thing that the numbers from the Office of the High Commissioner show is that the number of civilian casualties has declined very considerably. So it was quite high in March. It was high in April, but it's been declining uh, significantly. Does this show a deterrent effect to go back to your original question? I don't know. The problem always with trying to determine the deterrent effect of criminal justice is to see, is to identify the people who were deterred. I have to tell you, I've been to China many times. I've often been involved in debates about deterrence, not about war crimes, but about capital punishment in China. And the idea that the death penalty, you know, people who defend the death penalty say we need it because it deters people from committing serious crimes. But the thing is, we only see the people who are not deterred, who commit the murders, because the people I don't know how many people are here in the webinar watching this, but I don't know. We're, probably none of them committed a murder in the last year. Is that because they were deterred by the death penalty? No, it's because they're good people who respect human life and they could never murder another human being. This is the problem with deterrence, is that, that we don't know that it has a deterrent effect. Probably the greatest deterrent effect of criminal justice is the threat of being caught, of being apprehended. If people think that they'll get caught when they commit a crime, then they can be deterred from doing it by the likelihood of being caught. But the Russians, I think the Russian soldiers don't expect to be caught. I think they expect to win the battle and to get away and to go back to Russia. So I would be quite skeptical about the deterrent effect. I mean, I would like to think that it's, it, there is a deterrent effect of international justice, but I don't know. There's one final point about which I should, I should say a word. The International Criminal Court can also exercise jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. 
there's a very good case to be made that Russia has committed the crime of aggression as defined in the Rome Statute within Ukraine. But although the court under the Rome Statute has a pretty broad basis of jurisdiction for states that have accepted the court, so it has jurisdiction over the territory of the states that have ratified the statute or that have made a declaration recognizing the jurisdiction of the court. That's the case with Ukraine. They also have jurisdiction over the citizens of those countries if they commit crimes anywhere. So to take the example of the People's Republic of China, the court can exercise jurisdiction over a crime in the Rome Statute committed in China if it's committed by somebody who's a citizen of a country that joined the court. But not over people, not over, that doesn't cover 99.9% .9 of the people in, in China. But when it comes to aggression, the jurisdiction is much narrower. And this is a result of the, of the efforts of Britain and France in particular, who wanted to reserve to the United Nations Security Council the right to make determinations about, about the crime of aggression. I won't go into the details unless you really want me to. It's quite technical. It's quite technical, and we don't need to know about it for the purpose of this discussion, except to say that the, the court is unable to exercise jurisdiction over the crime of aggression in this conflict because of the of the role of Britain and France. Other countries would have been prepared to accept a broader basis of jurisdiction, but it was Britain and France who wanted to limit the jurisdiction of the court in the way uh, that's been done. So it cannot exercise jurisdiction over the one crime that would really be interesting to prosecute, which is the crime of aggression, the use of armed force on the territory of another state, which is what Russia has done in violation of the Charter of the United Nations. I'll stop there. Yeah, uh, with this question, is it because Russia uh, did not uh, accept the Roman uh, statute? No, not really. Um, Russia, Russia originally signed the Rome Statute, okay? Um, Russia voted in favor of the Rome Statute. For many years, the position of Russia to the, with regard to the Rome Statute and the International Criminal Court was better than that of the United States. But Russia withdrew its signature after the United States had done this. The United States, Russia, and Israel all signed the Rome Statute. That doesn't mean they joined it. They were just signatories to the statute, but they didn't become parties. They did this preliminary step of signing it, which was a, a gesture of, of friendship towards the court without accepting the obligations, but better than nothing. So the United States did this, Russia did this, and Israel did it. The United States and Israel both withdrew, but Russia did not for many years. Then in 2016, when the prosecutor said she was going to be investigating in Crimea, Russia said, okay, we're, we're going to withdraw our signature as well. But even if they were still a signatory of the Rome Statute, they wouldn't have any obligations to cooperate with the court under the statute. But Russia 
is exposed to the or Russians, I should say, not Russia as a state, but Russian soldiers who are in Ukraine can be prosecuted by the International Criminal Court for war crimes. That's what the prosecutor is investigating. Yes, then I very clearly, uh, it solved my doubts. Thank you. And uh, how do you prospect the possibilities of the formal, formal prosecution and case filing of Russia's possible war crime in Ukraine at the ICC? Although that I already know your position and opinion. So what's your prospect on this? Well, uh, they, there are obviously big expectations that the prosecutor will take action uh, with regard to uh, uh, war crimes committed in Ukraine. Uh, and a lot of money has been put in. The, the European Union, as you mentioned in your introductory comments, gave, I think, 7.5 million euro. And there are also contributions in kind of personnel that, uh, that have been sent from, from countries in Europe. Uh, and quietly, the Americans are getting money there as well because they have various legal obstacles, but they're obviously supportive of this. I know you have a question on this, and we'll get to the American position in more detail in a minute. But so, so there's the expectation that this will result in prosecutions. Now, I don't know that anybody would be justified in having high expectations for the activity of the court because everything takes forever there. Everything takes a very, very long time. And it's difficult to identify who, who they would be going after uh, at the court. Um, the Gathering the evidence is not a simple matter. And so far, what we've seen from the allegations and from Ukraine's activity is they've caught some prisoners of war, some soldiers who committed an atrocity. But this is not what the ICC is for. It, it has never prosecuted people at that low level. The ICC, the International Criminal Court, is there to prosecute commanders, leaders, generals, colonels, people in authority who are directing these crimes. The, the, the isolated cases of, of, a, of a Russian soldier who raped somebody or uh, who targeted uh, civilians or who may have arbitrarily may have may have murdered a, a civilian or a prisoner. This is this is not what the court is for, and I think it's unlikely that they will prosecute such cases. They, they, those absolutely belong to the to Ukraine. So this is the thing. Now, you know, justice is always unpredictable. They may capture a general uh, or a colonel, somebody in authority. They'll still then have to be able to demonstrate that the general either gave orders to commit atrocity crimes or was um, in some way tolerated them being committed. And this is not so straightforward because often these crimes are committed by um, undisciplined soldiers who are, who are acting, who are not acting under, under orders. We don't know, we'll, 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 we don't have evidence of it. As far as I know, they're looking for it, you know, maybe they'll catch a Russian general and the Russian general will agree to testify that he was told to break international law and, and target civilians, maybe. As for the, the, um, the, the bulk of the offenses, or I don't want to say offenses, 
The bulk of the casualties, and this is according to the report of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, but it's also something I think that people know from the media, are people, are civilians who were killed as a result of uh, bombing or shelling. That is artillery bombardments or bombs dropped from airplanes or rockets. And according to the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, this accounts for the great majority of the civilian casualties. Those crimes are notoriously difficult to prosecute. And the examples we have of successful prosecution, well, I don't want to say successful. There was a famous case at the Yugoslavia Tribunal involving the shelling of cities or towns in southern Croatia in the final months of the war in the former Yugoslavia in, uh, in uh, August of 1995. And they captured some Croatian generals and prosecuted them at the court. They were convicted at the trial, but the conviction was overturned, was reversed by the appeals chamber. And one of the things that happened in between the judgment at the trial and the appeals chamber was that the lawyers for the militaries of the United States and the United Kingdom and Israel got active and started complaining that this was, that the court had been too strict, that the, that the Yugoslavia tribunal had judged the conduct of the commanders who were bombarding cities with rockets and artillery had set the standard too high and had found them guilty because of that. And the appeals chamber reversed it. And it was a terrible message that the appeals chamber sent, but it was done at the request. Well, let, let me say not at the request because these were independent judges, but they, they delivered a judgment that was welcomed by the armies that are concerned about bombing and targeting cities in particular the Israelis who have bombarded terribly Gaza on more than one occasion uh, with terrible damage, damage that's comparable to the kind of damage and the, the civilian casualties that were seen in Ukraine, comparable in scale, actually more severe because in, uh, when, the, when, when Gaza has been bombarded by the Israeli artillery, the casualties have not been as numerous as they are in Ukraine, but the population of Gaza is 2 million people and the population of Ukraine is 40 million people. So the, the proportion is actually greater when Israel bombards uh, Gaza. So all of this is to say that those cases legally are going to be very hard to prosecute. And the assumption that you know, they have their war crimes, we're going to prosecute them easily. These are by people who don't know the law and don't know how hard it is to prosecute these cases. Yeah, this is very clear. And Professor, I will want to um, shift the topic a little bit to the ICC and China. We know in the medias, especially in the Western media, there are a lot of discussions about um, the case about Xinjiang, uh, that because they are ICC has rejected the calls to open investigation on the so-called genocide in Xinjiang in December 2020. But recently in June, uh, a lawyer from British renewed the calls for the ICC to open an investigation into the treatment of Uyghurs and other Muslim groups in Xinjiang. 
uh, he also uh, presents some evidence to the prosecutors. Um, th there were also some um, statements about the Myanmar's Rohingya minorities case uh, with the comparison of the Xinjiang case. So do you think the ICC will start the investigation? And uh, also we, we know the evidence is very important in all the international criminal cases. And there are also some very controversies about the evidence and fact-finding uh, in this context. So I, we want to know your opinion. Maybe you can combine these two questions together. Thank you. Well, yes, the, 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 um, I, I've been following this and I remember when the, when the ICC, when the International Criminal Court issued its ruling about jurisdiction in, uh, in uh, Myanmar. This is, this is the decision that the judges of the, uh, at the preliminary level, the pretrial chamber, made a ruling about three years ago, more than three years ago, I guess, about three years ago, saying that the court could exercise jurisdiction over the crime of deportation because, because they, they crossed the border from Myanmar, which is not a member of the court, into Bangladesh, which is. It's an interesting creative argument uh, that the judges accepted, uh, but that has not been really challenged in a case. So this was, you know, uh, when, when you follow court decisions and you see when the prosecutor goes before the judges alone without a defense lawyer on the other side and says to the judges, here's where I think, and the judges say, yes, I guess so. Um, it, it, there's no guarantee that's going to be upheld uh, when there's a, a proper battle in court, when you have defense lawyers who, who give the judges the opposite argument. I, I think it's an interesting argument, but I remember when it when it was decided, I said, well, if they can prosecute uh, 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 deportation in Myanmar because people left Myanmar and went to uh, Bangladesh, I suppose you could get some Uyghur in China who could get on a KLM airplane and fly to Amsterdam, and then they would cross an international border and claim that they were deported from China. So it's theoretically possible if that argument is upheld. It's, it's, it's absolutely possible that they could do this. Now, when they initially tried, and the prosecutor answered this in a, in a report that she issued in, in uh, 2020, they, the, the lawyers, the, 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 I know the lawyer who did this in Britain, I, somebody I know very well, and he did it based on the idea that people were being deported into China from Cambodia and from Turkmenistan, which are both members of the court. But, uh, and the, the prosecutor said, no, that doesn't work. That's, that's not the same thing. But I think what he'll do, what he is doing is arguing that there are people who are being driven out of China by persecution in Xinjiang. And that if they, when they cross a border, when they're driven out, they go into a, into a country that's a member of the court, according to the logic of that decision, then the court can exercise jurisdiction. Will they do it? You know, this is very hard to predict because it's down to one single individual. Um, you know, he, he has already about a dozen active situations in different countries and different parts of the world. He clearly doesn't have the time and the resources to do things in all of those situations, 
certainly judging by his predecessors, who, as I've said, were only able to do a few trials at a time, I would be astonished if he would do it. But it's also clear we, we have a, 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 a better idea now of the prosecutor's political orientation. So do you think that a prosecutor who seems to be oriented towards the policies of NATO might also welcome the chance to pursue someone from the People's Republic of China for violations of the Rome Statute? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Get ready. <laughs> he might do it because it's a political decision and we know his political orientation. So yeah, it's not, I wouldn't rule it out. It's possible because the people who, who love him now because of what he's doing in Ukraine will love him even more if he goes after somebody from the People's Republic of China. So I don't know the answer to this, but, uh, and, and I think that it's, it's fraught with legal difficulties, but you know, you'll need some smart lawyers if they go after somebody from China, but you have them. I'm sure you'll have good arguments. Yeah, the, the alert is received. We know that the evidence and fact-finding in the international context is key to the international adjudicative bodies like the ICC. Uh, in terms of the Xinjiang uh, issue, the data and information manipulated by activists and scholars like the German scholar Andrew Zanz on Xinjiang are also used by some Western government and lawyers. So how do you view the credibility of those so-called evidence in, this, in those cases? Uh, thank you. You know, I've been studying all of the reports that have come out about, about Xinjiang from sources outside of, of China. I've never seen a, a report inside China, but the ones that I've seen are the ones by, there was one by um, some lawyers in London, uh, barristers in a, in a law firm in London who did it for, uh, did an opinion about, about violations of international law, um, well, about genocide, essentially. And in their opinion, they said, uh, yes, we have all these evidence of acts of genocide. The only thing that we're not sure about is whether it's the intent to destroy the physically the, 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 the Uyghur population in Xinjiang. You know, when they put that paragraph, it's, a, it's one sentence in the middle of this, this page, this document of many, many pages. But it, once you say that, it means that, that you don't have evidence of genocide. Because to, to have evidence of genocide, you have to have evidence of the intent to destroy the group physically. And the lawyers said they didn't have that. Then there's, a, there's another report. Uh, it's not a report. There was a tribunal that was held by uh, some lawyers in, in London. Um, they called it the, the Uyghur Tribunal. Uh, and they issued a judgment last December uh, when they were doing it. I spoke to them. They, they spoke to me about it because they wanted some advice about the law dealing with genocide. They issued their judgment, which made news reports that they had found that genocide was committed in China. But actually, when you read their judgment, four of the five acts of genocide, including killing members of the group and causing imposing conditions of life calculated to destroy the group, they said there wasn't enough evidence. The only 
the only act of genocide for which they said there was evidence was the act of preventing births. And they referred to the, these studies that have been done by this guy, Adrian Zenz. But it's the weirdest reasoning that has no basis in any judicial decisions, in any court cases. They said, because they acknowledge that actually the Uyghur population in Xinjiang is increasing. And that the measures that have been taken that are alleged to have been taken by the government in, in China are lowering the rate of increase of the population. They're not preventing, because the impression that Zenz is giving people is that they're prohibiting Uyghurs from having children, but this is not the case. Uyghurs have had large families and they still have large families, but they're smaller than they were because of the measures, similar to the measures that China has imposed on its entire population for many years about family size. So the, this tribunal said, well, this is preventing births because it's reducing the birth rate, but they still had the problem of saying, so who's the victim? And they said, the victim are the unborn children of the Uyghurs. These are the victims of the crime. Well, this is a very bizarre theory is all I can say that the victims of the crime are people who haven't yet been born. This is an absurd, it's the kind of thing you would get from, from some American fundamentalists uh, who are against the, the right of women to have abortion. There are plenty of them in the United States. And so they would talk about crimes committed against unborn children, but there's no authority for this being genocide. So they don't have, uh, you know, what I'm saying is that even the bodies that have been charging China with genocide admit that they don't really have a good case and they don't have strong evidence. Yeah, thank you, Professor. I will ask my last question and then we will open the Q&A session. Uh, so we talk about the role of the US, the global North and Europe. So uh, by reviewing uh, the evolution process of the ICC, we can see that uh, there are selective investigations from the ICC on different targeted countries. Uh, for example, it can only investigate some specific countries where it is very weak to some other country conducts. And you have explained with, with us for some of the reasons. And uh, one thing that we can, we can observe is that with many war crimes, lack of investigation and trials, like U.S. war conducts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and well, there are also some very politicalized issues like the rights of Xinjiang Uyghur people have been pushed on the agenda of the ICC. So um, you, you also uh, mentioned in your previous publication that the international justice mechanism are extraordinarily expensive. So then it leads to the unavoidable result that was to focus the international justice upon crisis that was strategically important to the wealthy states. So is that the reason that behind the imbalance of the distribution of attention and the resources of international justice? And how will this impact the ICC's judicial independence and impartiality? Okay, well, there are two parts to your question. One is about the, um, the resources of the prosecutor and the ability to investigate. One of the, one of the situations that I have been very, very, um, excited about was the investigation by the prosecutor into the situation in Palestine. Um, 
And the prosecutor has the resources to do that. The prosecutor has a, has a lot of money, even without the voluntary contributions from the rich states, because the countries that are members pay fees. They have a, the, they, the prosecutor, the budget of the court is 150 million euro every year. So the prosecutor doesn't have any problem finding the resources to investigate Palestine, but he's clearly taking decisions that have a political orientation and diverting the resources to Ukraine, for example. We shall see. We may be pleasantly surprised to see him investigate Palestine, um, but at the same time, you know, he's 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 making decisions that are not reviewable, that are that are political. But he he has the money to do it. It's a question of the priorities um, and the way he directs them. As for the United States, I mean, it's a fascinating subject watching the United States and the International Criminal Court because it its position changes all the time, and uh, it's been it's 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 sometimes it's it's enthusiastic about the court, and sometimes it's trying to sabotage the court, and we can see these periods. Sometimes it's excited about it, and sometimes it's it's hostile to the court. So now there's a sense that it's it's uh, it's it's friendly to the court, but it, it has a problem with legal consistency, because it makes arguments against the court that ultimately uh, uh, make it difficult for, for to argue uh, for the things it wants at the court. Let me give you an example. The United States has claimed since the time the Rome Statute was adopted in, in 1998, that the court could not exercise jurisdiction over a citizen of a country that hadn't joined the court, okay? The United States has said this in debates, public debates, it's its position, uh, over and over again has said this. If that's true, it means that the International Criminal Court cannot exercise jurisdiction over Russians in Ukraine, okay? Now, nobody agrees with the United States about this. It's wrong in law, I think. Everyone agrees that if, if Ukraine can prosecute Russians for committing crimes in Ukraine, which it can, that it can also confer that same jurisdiction, which it has by virtue of its own sovereignty, it can surely do that to an international organization. So it's a, it's a stupid argument that the United States has been making, but now it's an obstacle to them making the argument that the Russians can be prosecuted for war crimes in Ukraine. I've been asking my, my colleagues and friends in the United States uh, who are generally big enthusiasts for the court, I'd say, so has the U.S. changed its position? And they say, well, it's not clear. The United States is not entirely clear whether it's changed its position or not. So it, this is, this is it's, it's interesting to watch the confusion in the United States about the International Criminal Court. Basically, the United States, going right back to Nuremberg and Tokyo, likes international justice. If it can control it, when it can control what a court is doing, the United States, you have no greater enthusiast for international justice than the United States of America. So when they think they don't control the International Criminal Court, they hate it and they attack it. And that's why they attacked the last prosecutor because she was doing things that they couldn't control that were harmful to their interests. 
And right now, the United States seems to be confident that the court will actually um, pursue the interests of the United States. The, the problem is that there are a lot of people in the world who look at an institution and they, they, and I've always said this, they look at the United States and they say, if the United States hates the court, it must be doing something right. And so they like it. But if the United States loves the court, then they get worried because it means that the court is following the agenda of the United States. And I fear that that's what's happening right now. Yeah, thank you, Professor. Do you have about a mo mo another 10 minutes to answer two sure. questions from the audience? Yeah, uh, we have two questions from the audience. Uh, the first one is from uh, Cui Yan, uh, that is, war crimes relate closely to armed conflicts regarding a possible escalated cross-street conflict uh, that is between mainland China and Taiwan, as pushed by US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, like, 12 hours, less than 12 hours ago. Uh, the US official often used protection of democracy as its argument to intervene militarily to other countries. So could, could protection of democracy as its argument to intervene militarily, or could protection of democracy be used as a legal basis to use force under the international law? Will that constitute crime of aggression according to the Rome Statute? It's a very interesting question. When uh, um, and, and thank you, Suyin, for for asking it. When uh, when the amendments to the Rome Statute were adopted in 2010, uh, as part of the the review of the Rome Statute, the United States argued for a definition of aggression that would recognize the legitimacy of the use of force when its purpose was, they said, to prevent one of the crimes uh, in the Rome Statute from being committed. It was kind of this notion of, of humanitarian intervention was the idea that which the United States has defended that when some, some international crime is being committed, they may have to intervene militarily to prevent it, even when they don't have the authorization of the United Nations Security Council under chapter seven of the Charter of the United Nations. So the United States attempted to obtain this recognition uh, at the conference when these amendments to the Rome Statute were adopted, but it failed. It failed in doing it. Um, and that issue has returned now in the case that's currently before the International Court of Justice that was filed by Ukraine against Russia. It's a, it's a very curious, legal argument based on the genocide convention where ukraine is saying that russia is using uh, um, the argument of genocide to justify the use of force in ukraine in violation of the charter of the united nations and they're asking the court to rule that they can't do that so we've had we've had mixed attitudes to the and there are some countries new zealand recently intervened in the case at the court. They submitted a document a few days ago that said that they thought that you could intervene uh, without authorization of the Security Council in order to prevent genocide. Now, your question was not about genocide. Nobody's alleging that genocide is taking place in Taiwan or maybe in, in China. That's another question. But if, if you, you, you want to talk about a potential 
armed conflict relating to the sovereignty of, of uh, Taiwan, I think that there, if the United, I think that if the United States were to intervene, they would claim that they were doing it at the request of the uh, of the government of Taiwan. So that would be uh, that that then would be an argument that they would use to to resist the charge that it's a violation of the charter. I think that's what they would say. But uh, but but no, there's no basis in international law anywhere for using force outside of your own territory in order to protect democracy. Absolutely not. Thank you, Professor, for your answer. We have another question from Shi uh, Xiaojuan. It is about another big news this week. That is on July 30th, the US killed the leader of Al-Qaeda, Aman al-Zawahiri, in a drone strike in Afghanistan. As we also know that uh, dates before the withdrawal of US forces from Afghanistan last year, a miscalculated US drone strike killed 10 innocent people in Kabul, including an aid worker and seven children. So were there any war crimes involved in those drone killings in the international law? Yes, well, to some extent, you have to know the, the nature of the, the conflict to make a determination like that. I would need to know all the evidence. I'm not a, an enthusiast for these uh, drone strikes that assassinate people. The United States also did it to a leader of Iran um, a few years ago at the airport in, uh, I think, in Baghdad. Um, so, um, but but it's really when uh, when uh, what what I get more excited about is when innocent civilians are killed, and uh, there's a lot of that that happens, um, and we see it happening in Ukraine, and it breaks our hearts to see in, innocent innocent civilians who are not participating in the in the conflict being being killed it breaks our hearts when we see it in ukraine and it should break our hearts when we see it happen in in afghanistan um unfortunately unfortunately the the laws of of armed conflict what we call international humanitarian law uh tolerates tolerates a lot of killing of civilians to the extent that they are near or associated with lawful targets and this is this is one of the very unfortunate aspects of uh, of international humanitarian law um, it doesn't do a good enough job in uh in protecting civilians and uh, so that's where we have an issue about whether or not these would be would be war crimes they're absolutely human rights violations um, they're violations of the right to life, but whether we can prosecute them for war crimes is a more difficult uh, and quite technical question that it's it's impossible to, to give a, a firm answer on without knowing more facts. Uh, oh, thank you so much, Professor William Shabazz. This is really an amazing talk, and I think we learned so much from you in this past one hour. And thank you again for all your insights and a very generous sharing. Thank you. It's my pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Professor. This is the end of this episode on possible war crime trials in Ukraine situation and its impact on the development of international criminal law. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy our program. Please do follow and subscribe this channel, The Global Governance Perspective. You can also follow us on our Twitter and Facebook to write your comments. Look forward to joining us next time.